0: The book of Titus in chapter 2. This is one of three pastoral epistles. Uh, Paul had been released from his first Roman imprisonment. at 62 A.D. He left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church there. He had left Titus on an island called Crete. That was a very pagan place to pastor there. And he's giving some instructions to help him to set the church up in a successful way and last week we looked at the role of older men and older women and younger men and younger women and and it's how it's God's desire that the bottom line as we saw there in verse 10 is that they would adorn themselves with the doctrine of God our Savior in all things so if you were to look at their life that you would see their life and say the way they're living is exactly what I read in the Bible Or without reading the Bible, I can tell you about God just because of the way they talk and the way they act. Therefore, we can know uh, who the Lord is. This is it. Just to adorn with your words, adorn with your attitudes, adorn with your life, the very gospel of God our Savior in all things. How can that happen? How can it happen that as we look at the list here of the reverent behavior, not being slanders, not addicted to wine or any other stimulant, but a teacher of good things, loving uh, their husbands, loving their children, being discreet, chaste, uh, obedient uh, to one another, submitting one to another, not blaspheming, sober mind. How can, how can this pattern of good works be in our lives? He gives us the key here in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age. First of all, we come to know that grace of God. What grace? The same grace that saved you. Remember in John 1, it says there, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. And it goes on to say, and of His fullness we have all received. Of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You know, the whole concept of grace is more than you need. But that's not what we received. We received grace, and then we received grace upon grace. So I I like the picture of grace. Say you come to God, and and you need His grace to forgive your sins. And there you come with your little five-gallon bucket, saying, God, can you fill me up with your grace? Fill me up with your forgiveness. And the Lord said, "Sure." And all of a sudden he gets a fire hose and starts filling up that 5-gallon bucket. And you're trying to hang on to that, man. And and then all of a sudden 10 more fire hoses start on. And and all you before you know it, you're you're standing there with your little 5-gallon bucket. And and before you know it, you're out in the middle of this lake of grace. And there you're treading water with your little five-gallon bucket, and the Lord shouts, that's grace. Now get ready for grace upon grace. And there you hear these doors opening and screeching of the metal, and all of a sudden you look, and in every direction, ten different doors are opening up, giant dams. All of a sudden, water starts flooding in. And before you know it, you're out in the middle of this incredible ocean of grace, and you can't even see land. You're looking, trying to see land. And God said, do you feel forgiven enough now? Gee, Lord, all I needed was a five-gallon bucket. Well, I don't work in those terms. Grace, man. So whatever it is, if it's forgiveness, if it's power, if it's love, if it's strength, God comes with grace, and of His fullness. He didn't... He didn't hold back. He didn't, you know, give us a little chump change. He didn't, he didn't give us the scrapings off the bottom to make it do. He didn't give us some stale piece of bread. He gave us a feast of grace. And then after we were stuffed with that feast, he said, man, that was just appetizers. Now here's the real meal. And all of a sudden, it's more than we could ever imagine. And it's that grace that saved us. Even when we were sinners, even when we were dead in our sins, we came to know that God of grace. In Acts 20, it tells us it's the gospel of the grace of God. What is the gospel? It's about the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. And it also tells us in Acts 20, verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Acts 20, verse 32. It's that word of grace that's going to build us up. It's that word of grace that's going to sanctify us and bring us to the state that we need to be with all the saints that are sanctified in the Lord. And in Colossians 20, verse 6, it says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. How is it we were saved? In Ephesians 2, it says, You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. That word grace, that word gift, it's the same word. That it's the same root as grace. It's by the grace of God, by the gift of God. It's not of yourself. It's not of works. That's how a person was saved, by grace. So as you were saved, so now continue in Him. How did we get saved? We came and said, God, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer to bring to this relationship. And God said, I didn't expect it. I will bring it all. I give you mercy. I give you love. I give you forgiveness. Jesus on the cross, he said, It is finished. The word there that he actually would have said in the Greek is the word to It's the word that when they when somebody finally paid off their mortgage, they would stamp on there to which means paid in full. Jesus shouted on the cross, it's been paid in full. There is nothing you can add to the salvation of God. It's a completed work. You come by faith and receive it as what it is, a gift from God. And so this grace of God, notice it says, that brings salvation. It brings it to us. We are so dead in our trespasses and sins The Bible makes it clear that it had to be brought to us. God so loved the world, what? That He gave His only begotten Son. Nobody was asking, but He brought it to us. God willingly gave it to you. Jesus, interesting enough, gives many parables Showing that God had brought them salvation and and the religious religious Pharisees just slapped it away. Said, we don't want it. We're not interested in it. It's like a man, he said, that built built a vineyard. And he handed it over to people and said, work the vineyard for me. And when it comes time for harvest, I will come and receive my share from the crops. And he sent his servants and they said, we're not giving you a penny. And they beat some they stoned some they killed some so finally the man sent his only son and they said here comes the son let's kill him so we don't have to give to him let's do him and hopefully the father will leave us alone after this point he'll get our point of we don't want him we're not interested in him and they took the son and they killed him and Jesus says what will the owner of that vineyard do And the Pharisees realized he was talking about them. They understood. They said that they'll take those men and they will kill them and they'll hand the vineyard over to somebody else. And then they clicked. Oh, man, he's talking about us. We killed all the prophets. We didn't receive the word of God. And now, in estimation, Jesus Christ is the son and they want to kill him. But nevertheless, God brought it to them. As many as willing to receive it can have that gift that God is bringing. And it says it has appeared to all men. Turn to Matthew chapter 11 if you would. This grace of God that was brought to us salvation, it has now appeared to all men. In Matthew chapter 11, in verse 25, It says at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent, being sarcastic, and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seems good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The fact that it has appeared to us is because the Son has allowed it to appear to us and the Father has revealed it unto us. Hold your finger there, or actually turn now to John chapter 6, verse 44. We're going to go back to Titus here in a minute, but in John chapter 6, verse 44. It says there, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. It's this grace that's been brought to us and brings to us salvation. It to us has appeared because the Son has willed it, because the Father has desired it. That it has appeared unto us and not... Just to us, but it is for, it says there back in Titus, although it has appeared to us, it's been brought to appear to all men. In Romans chapter 3, it says in verse 21, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all, it says in verse 22 of Romans 3, to all and on all, who believe to all and on all who will believe. And in Romans 10, it says, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon his name for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the salvation is there for all men. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord, whoever will believe on the Lord, to that person, God will give them that salvation. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there in verse 1, you can turn to Titus just a couple of pages to the left. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for who? For all men. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and a peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Listen now, verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior? That we would be a people of prayer That we would be a people of prayer praying for all the men. Especially not all men, but just every single king and everybody in authority. That we ourselves, as we are praying for all men. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Why? Because God wishes all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, back in Titus, he tells us there, For this grace of God that brings salvation, that has appeared unto us and has appeared, it's there for all men. He says that same grace of God that saved us is the same grace of God that teaches us. It teaches us. That word in the Greek is the word that's also used in a parent training up the child. So you could say the grace of God is disciplining us, instructing us. The grace of God is correcting us. The grace of God is encouraging us in the right direction. So the grace of God that brought salvation to us is the same grace of God that doesn't just take us to step one, but takes us to step two and step three and step four and on and on and on. It's that grace of God that constantly is working in our life. And it is teaching us what? A negative, and it's also teaching us on the positive side of thing. On the negative side of thing, it's teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. It's teaching us to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. That we would be so overwhelmed with the forgiveness that God has brought to us. We'd be so overwhelmed at the kindness of God. We'd be so overwhelmed with the gentleness of the Lord. We'd be so overwhelmed with God's persistent working in our life. That we would come to the place that as we're just overwhelmed with the kindness and the goodness of God that has led us to repentance. That that grace now would teach us to hate worldly lust. It would teach us to hate ungodliness. That if it's not like Jesus, I don't want it in my life. If it doesn't bring me closer to Jesus, I don't want anything to do with it. But it is the grace of God. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, And by His doing, we have salvation, we have sanctification, we have redemption. Why? that he who glories, glories in the Lord, not in us. So if you are here today and this last week you have not given in to lust, it's because God's grace is teaching you. And it's interesting here that the word denying is actually in the aorist. It's in a completed past action. In other words, it's not something that God is teaching you on a continual basis. It's something that, it's a work that God's going to do in your life, and it will be the past to you. A completed past action to never be repeated again. So it's that grace of God that's bringing us to the place that we, we stop struggling with worldly lust. That we stop struggling with ungodliness. That there comes a point in our life that the grace of God does a work and and we are just beyond that. We're not laying again a foundation about dead works. We're, We're just, we've put away that old dead man and we don't come back to him again. There are people that sort of just continue to suck on their bottle year after year after year as a Christian. Even though they're 15 years in the Lord, they still come to church to get their diaper changed. And the reality is, is, you know, when you're changing the diaper of a little baby, that's one thing. But when you're changing the diaper of a 15-year-old or a 30-year-old, it's a sad thing. And the grace of God is disciplining us, working with us, correcting us, bringing us to the place where we can say ungodliness and the worldly lust of this world is a past dead issue in my life. Now, I am not saying that we're not going to always fight with our flesh, but the Bible makes a big distinction That those who are in Christ are no longer in the flesh. So, for a Christian who's following the Lord to say, Man, I've really been in the flesh this week, that is just not correct. People that are in the flesh don't struggle with the flesh. The guys in the locker room after the football game or whatever, and they're boasting about their sexual exploits or boasting about how they beat somebody up or or whatever, they're not grieved. (laughs) They, they are putting it on as a badge. They're putting it on as a, a medal of honor that I had sex with this girl or I did this mean thing to that person. They are in the flesh. They're not at all struggling with the flesh. They're doing the things of the flesh and proud of it. But when Christ comes into our life, we now struggle with our flesh and we will continue to struggle with our flesh till the day we die. But there's a difference between struggling and having continual victory and struggling and having continual defeat. And there comes a point in our walk, in our pilgrimage as Christians, where the grace of God has brought us to a place in our walk of the Lord that the ungodliness and the worldly lust are a past issue. And now it's not a matter of struggling with some fleshly sinful thing. It's a struggle to have more love, to have more grace, to have more kindness, to see the fruit of God abounding more in our life, not the struggle over the old dead man. He truly has been put to death and has been dead in the past action for years. It's the grace of God that wants to bring us to that heiress past to where we have denied once and for all that old man, and he is gone. And then it goes on to say on the positive side of things that you now can live, he said, that you should. Doesn't say it's a definite. For some people, they're unwilling to let go of that old man, to put to death those old deeds of the flesh. But it can happen where Past tense, you have denied the ungodliness and worldly lusts, and now you are. It doesn't say you are for sure, but this is how it should be, that you are walking now soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And if you read, you were with us in chapter 1 and you saw the requirements of a leader in the church, and if you were with us in the first part of chapter 2 and looking at the life we should be living as older men, as older women, as younger men, as younger women, these are the same words that he's using now. He's saying that you should now have this lifestyle of soberly living or living a life of self control. So the first thing is for yourself. That I have self control over my own flesh, over my own mouth, over my own attitudes. That God has given me victory. That I am walking as Christ would walk. For yourself, you're free to live in that godly manner. Secondly, for others, you're living a righteous life towards your fellow man. You are really living in such a way that you are indeed a pattern of good works. That men can look upon you and they were to follow you, they indeed would be following Christ. And so your fruitfulness is becoming a benefit unto others. And then thirdly, he says... Not only should you be walking soberly for yourself, righteously for others, but godly for God. You're walking in a way that you can walk hand in hand with the Lord. You're walking in a way that you can indeed have the presence of the Lord. Because you're not walking in a sinful way. You're walking in a, a godly way that God can walk in agreement with that life, hand in hand. And so you're regarding God. Regarding yourself, you're, you have your flesh under control. You're walking righteously. You're a fruitfulness to other people. And you're walking godly so you can walk hand in hand with the Lord. Not grieving the Holy Spirit, but quite the opposite. Rejoicing the Holy Spirit. And it's right now. I mean, ultimately, we will all have this life. When we are out of this body and we are in present with the Lord in our brand new body, every one of us at that moment... <laughs> Past tense, eras past, all ungodliness and worldly lust are dead When we're in heaven in our brand new bodies It's going to definitely happen in our new bodies in heaven We're going to be soberly, righteously and godly forever and ever and ever But he's talking about right now in this present age You hear people That get discouraged and just say That's just me You know, the Archie Bunker You know, Edith, get used to it. I am what I am, you know. You see these younger people going, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Well, I don't know the newer ones, so I can't help you. But, you know, (laughs) where you're setting your ways and and you're saying, I'm not going to improve beyond this. This is my nature. This is my character. I'm Italian. I'm whatever. This is just the way I am. You're going to have to accept it. And God is saying, wrong. The grace of God, if you will allow it, if you will work, as Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, be strong in the grace of God. God can bring you to the place that you can say, the past tense, the worldly lust, the ungodliness, it's something of my past life. Now I struggle, not with whether or not I'm going to commit some heinous sin of the flesh, But I struggle with allowing God's love to be greater in my life. I'm struggling to to be a greater giving person, a greater servant, a person of more fruits of God's Spirit in my life. His joy can continue to grow. I get grumpy sometimes. I want a greater joy in my life. I say things I wish I hadn't said. There's still some working out of self-control of my mouth that God still wants to work in. But God wants to bring you, and when we get to that place, when God brings us to that place, like Paul said, when we were amongst you, we have a good conscience because you know that as we lived among you, and there he gives the list soberly, righteously, that we were unto you, and I can say, as God is my witness, a pattern of a godly life, not just me, but everyone that was with me. You can follow us as we follow Christ. Boy, that's a heavy thing. Paul says, the entire time we were with you, you can know. I am confident, as God is my witness, I have a complete clear conscience that when we were with you, we were a pattern of Christ in every aspect of our life. That's a pretty radical statement. But Paul now is writing to this place, Crete, these guys were, were lazy and gluttons and liars, and, and in the church, they laughed about it. That's the way a bunch of Cretans are. We're not Christians. We're Cretan Christians, you know. We, we can never be a regular Christian because we're from Crete, and you know, Crete, we're a bunch of lazy liar and stillin type of people, and that's the way I was raised. It's It's not us. It's our culture, and that's just the way we are, and And Paul said, you tell them, you rebuke them sharply, he says in chapter 1, that there is no more of that kind of talk. Because the work that Christ does is a completed work. And now he's given them a vision saying, guys, the grace of God is greater than you can ever imagine. That same grace that you had no idea was out there. You had no idea of a Savior. You had no idea of a Messiah. You had no idea that He could come and forgive your sins and cleanse you from all of your past sins and and make you as white as snow before Him. You would that that grace was just not even in your concept of thinking, but it appeared to you and appeared to everybody on the island of Crete, and many of you received it. Well, let me tell you something. It didn't start and end all in the same day. <laughs> Getting your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life is not the finish of what God is doing. Right now, on the island of Crete, in this present age, that which is going to be a guaranteed fact of you in heaven is something that right now you can begin to experience. The grace of God can bring you to the place that for once and for all you can put to death that old dead man. That old, corrupt, sinful man. Past tense, once for all, you can deny the ungodliness, the worldly lust. And that you should, this is this should be the norm for you Christians in Crete. I'm not giving you some list of how the older women and older men should be that's like, oh, boy, that's some pipe dream of Paul's. That we would live a godly life, that we would be a godly example, we would be a pattern of good works, that we would be able to teach the younger women and the younger men how to have a life of godliness. This is, he says, no, this isn't some fantasy that can't have reality. This is the norm. I'm telling you that God's grace, even in this present evil, wicked age, you say, well, back in the olden days, it would have been easier. You know, it depends. I I agree there was probably decades and maybe even 40-year periods of time where there might have been an easier way, an easier period of time to not fight the flesh so much as it is in our day with all the perversity, whether it's on a billboard as you're driving down the freeway or listening to the corruption on the radio or looking at it on the TV or... I understand it's in our face, but when you go back and look at history, even ancient history, boy, they had it just as strong. a matter of fact, their present age was often evil. Turn, if you would, to Galatians. There in chapter 1, verse 4. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 writing to the church there of Galatia, which again had a quite a struggle of fleshliness, he says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from what? This present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. He didn't just save us to save us from our sins, but he also wants to deliver us from the present evil age, this world of corruption. Look at Romans chapter 12, if you would. Romans chapter 12, starting there in verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore. That word can mean I beg you, I plead with you. He's on his hands and knees pulling at your pant legs, saying, listen to me, I beg you, brethren, because of the great mercies of God, that you now present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why on this earth, why you're alive and breathing, that you daily can present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to who? To God, which is your reasonable service. It's only logical that you would live that way. Do not be conformed to this present world. That word, it's like warm clay. In those days when they were going to make a bust of a person, they would take warm clay and they would put it on their face and then they would press it on their face and let it set for a little bit and then they would very gently pull it away. And there it would have the perfect imprint of their... And then they would let that clay dry... And that would become the form and then they would pour in the new clay and then they would have the head the bust of that person a Exact replica of their face and he's saying don't warm up to the world and don't let the world warm up to you And as it presses in all of a sudden you like the warm clay are molding to the world You're being conformed into the image of this world But quite the opposite he says but be transformed be energized. Be exploding, if you would. So instead of them trying to put this warm clay on you, it's like you're breaking away. You're busting away from that stuff. And you're, by the renewing of your mind, washing your mind in the Word of God, in prayer, in fellowship, and a godly living, that you may prove what is not only the good, Not only that which is acceptable, as he said in verse 1, but also that which is what? The perfect will of God. That's radical. God wants you to experience the perfect will of God. Have you ever experienced that perfect will of God? I have. And there is nothing sweeter... (laughs) you know, as we were getting to try to get to that dedication night, to get to this build, into this building. And I kept saying, and I can't really say I said it in faith, but I said it, that God will make all things beautiful in His time. And I realized in those weeks before, you know, the fire came and we couldn't get electricity and we kept waiting, waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and uh, we kept setting dates and dates and dates, and I kept saying, hey, we're going to be in the perfect timing of God. God makes all things beautiful in his time. When we were here that dedication night, I don't know if everybody else experienced what I did. I've never experienced anything like it. It was truly an amazing moment in time. But I really believed it after that. (laughs) God really does make all things beautiful in his time. And when you experience that sweet spot, I don't know if you've ever played tennis, and you've hit the ball at the perfect angle, at the perfect part of the racket, and you're coming down, and you barely touch it, and that ball takes off like lightning and goes to the very spot on the course that you want it to go to. That sweet spot. God wants every second of every moment of every day of your life to be like that. Have you ever had baseball? You know, and you just hit that thing and you barely touch it and boom the perfect speed the perfect point in time you hit that ball and there it goes flying okay when you're playing with Barbie dolls and you're combing their hair just trying to get it just the way you want it and oh (laughs) I don't know what analogy to give when you're down, you know, at the casino and you pull that handle. (laughs) Horrible. I hope that's not your sweet spot. Gambling really grieves me. And so anyway, but uh, (laughs) God wants you to experience that perfect will of God. And there is that place where you can live in that perfect will of God. That's what God desires for you. In this present age, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It says there in verse 1 And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once, one time in the past, it's over now, walked. According to the course of this world, according to the Prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also, we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So we once had that kind of life that whatever our flesh wanted, whatever our mind wanted to think about, whatever way we wanted to live, whichever way the river was flowing, we jumped in and flowed with it. We once had that kind of life. But that's when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's when we had a broken relationship and we're not walking with God. Now as believers, that once should have happened in the past, but no longer now. Now we walk in the newness of that life, not in the past life any longer. So first of all, we understand that the grace of God wants to teach us and lead us and discipline and correct us and encourage us to that point where we are living that kind of life. Also, another key that helps us to live that pure godly life is found back in Titus there, chapter 2, verse 13. He says, there in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and a glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. Looking for, literally, it says, looking for the glory. Looking for the glory looking for that glorious point in time where we see the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 12, I I went into heaven, I I can't tell you what I saw. There's no words that can describe what I saw. There is a point when we are going to see the Shekinah glory, we're going to see Jesus Christ in all His glory, and boy, all the fogginess and fuzziness of our brain is going to be gone. We're no longer going to see in part or know in part. We're no longer going to be walking in steps of faith. We're going to see it plainly. We're going to see it clearly. And we're going to see ourselves in a perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's all going to come clear as day at that point in time. Looking for the glory. And in that glory, looking to see Jesus Christ face to face. And when we see him face to face, he says there that we're going to see our great God and also our Savior. In this verse, there is one article. So it's referring to one person. It's not talking about one person being God and another person being the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's saying our great God, who also is our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have one Lord. Our God is one Lord. Yet in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, a great mystery. But yet we have that one Lord, and He is also our Savior. Hold your finger there in Titus and turn over, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 45, a very important verse showing again that if one is called Savior, that He also is our God. In Isaiah chapter 45, there in verse 21. There's many verses on this, but I'm just going to look at this one here. Isaiah 45, verse 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. Listen, there is no other God besides me, a just God, and what? A savior, there is none. What besides me? And here we see in Titus, it tells us our great God and Savior. And here the Lord tells us in Isaiah, the, there is one Savior, and that Savior is God, and there is no other Savior. There is no other God but one, and that God we know through His Son Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, our Messiah. And we need to be putting our eyes upon our Lord and upon His coming. And in and of that focus of of an expectancy of the Lord could come right now tonight. There's a great work of purifying that happens in our life. Look, if you would, over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. There in verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be just like him, for we shall see him as he is. And listen, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So, to ask ourselves what 's it going to be like when Jesus Christ appears what 's it going to be like when we 're in our new bodies what 's it going to be like in heaven what 's it going to be like in glory that we should be continually asking ourselves our question, keep asking ourselves that question, keeping our eye on the goal, keeping our eye on the coming of the Lord, and as we are looking to his coming presently right now it has a purifying effect in our lives and purifies us even to the point that he our Lord and God is pure. That's a pretty radical effect. In 2 Timothy 4:18, he says, "Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only but to all who have loved his appearing." Loving the being excited about the coming of the Lord. There is a crown of righteousness waiting for us. On the flip side of the coin, those who are not expecting the Lord's coming, notice what happens to them. Turn to Matthew chapter 24, if you would. The book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 24. He starts there in verse 44 by saying this. Matthew 24, verse 44 Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Lord wants that tension there. That the coming of the Lord could be today, and are we ready today? In other words, you can't say, I'll let things sort of slide for a week or so, and and sort of, you know, give my life over to fleshly living, because I'll, I'll have, you know, the weekend on Sunday to get things right before the Lord might come back next week. The Lord wants that tension that it could be today. If you think about it, when the tension leaves a relationship, that relationship breaks down. For example, you have a a, a marriage. And, and there, the, you know, you start out on your honeymoon. You know, oh, honey, you know, can I get you some water? Can I do this for you? Can I do that for you? And, oh, yeah, you know, and she comes home and there, you know, has this elaborate meal fixed. And, you know, and she's in her brand new dress. And, you know, it's only Monday night. But, oh, honey, you know. And you have a few weeks of those, that honeymoon time. But then it can start breaking down. You know, where instead of saying, Honey, could you please pass the salt? He's like, Hey, am I going to wait all day here? Get that salt over here, you know? And, and you start getting rude, and, and you, start, you start taking really an advantage of one another, not appreciating each other the way you should. And, and what happens? Eventually, you offend each other. And you come home, and she's all quiet, and there's the meal, and, well, are you going to eat with me? I already ate. Go ahead, you can eat. I'll be in the other room waiting for you. And, and it's like there's tension. Or <laughs> he's all quiet and upset and just leaves, and usually says goodbye and kisses you goodbye, but he just left. And, boy, that, that's weird. Something's wrong. All of a sudden there's tension. And all of a sudden the hubby gets polite again. Starts talking gently. Hi, honey, are you okay? Is everything fine? You know, would you please pass this all? You know, all of a sudden, that, that things broke down. Tension came back. And when the tension comes back, all the right manners, all the right acting that should have been there are back there again. And it seems to be that relationships can have that sort of ebb and flow where we start taking each other for granted, start getting a little too loose, a little too familiar, a little too comfortable until it gets rude. And then all of a sudden, somebody's offended and things get really tense again. And the Lord in our relationship wants there to be some tension. And that tension is, I'm coming again. It says in 1 John chapter 2, Abide in Him, little children, so that when He appears, you will not shrink away in shame at His appearing. God doesn't want us to be in that state of being ashamed at His appearing. He wants us to have that tension and to be looking for His coming. He goes on there in Matthew 24 saying this, Who then is a faithful and a wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him what? So doing. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But on the flip side of the coin, verse 48 now, But the evil servant says in his heart, what? My master is delaying his coming. I don't think he's coming back today. I think the possibilities of him coming back this week are really slim. And there isn't that moment-by-moment expectation, the Lord could come right now, and what happens? He begins to get sloppy, and his heart begins to get evil, and he begins to beat his fellow servants to eat and to drink with the drunkards. The master of the servant will come. But on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour that he is not aware of, he will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the the point. Remember God said to the children of Israel, okay Moses, Aaron will be as the prophet and you Moses will be as God to the people. Do you remember that? God said, I'm going to set it up, and it's going to be in that analogy to them. And in that analogy, we discover in Exodus 32, God said, Moses, you by yourself, come up on the mountain. Joshua went up and stayed a distance away. And Moses is up on the mountain, getting the Ten Commandments. And the people after 50 days said, that guy Moses, we have no idea where he went. We have no idea if he's coming back. Aaron. Aaron. Make us a God and take us back to Egypt. And there, Aaron being the very weak person of character that he was, he ended up saying, "Well, what do you want? They gave him all the gold and he made a golden calf. They began to have a sexual orgy around that golden calf. And, and God said, Moses, just go down right now. I, I can't have, talk to you anymore. Those people are angering me. I'm getting ready to destroy them all and i start a new nation from you. And Moses went down and Joshua said, oh, there's a battle, somebody's attacking them. And he goes, no, Joshua, they're not being attacked. And they went down there and Moses took that golden calf and he burned it with fire, made it into ash, spread it on some water, had them all drink it. And they were all rebellious. And he said, everybody who's for God stand on this side. And the only person, the only people that stood as a people on the side of Moses was the Levites. Everybody else was against Moses. And there was a battle, and 3,000 people were killed in that day. And then repentance came. But that wicked heart began to spiral downwards when in their hearts they said, I don't think that guy's ever coming back. Let's take things in our own control. Let's think the thoughts that we think we need to think to accomplish what we need to accomplish in this place and time. No. We always have to be thinking on the things of heaven. We always have to be looking and joyfully looking for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in and of itself is a purifying effect that helps us walk a godly life in this world as we look for our great God and how great He is and our wonderful Savior. And in Titus there it says in chapter 2, verse 14, Who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed, And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. It tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that Jesus came for this reason that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came that he would destroy the the bondage that we're in. The word redeemed there literally means to buy one out of slavery. And the Bible tells us that we're enslaved to sin, that we're enslaved to flesh, that we're enslaved in our life to these things that that are binding us, holding us up. And that Christ didn't come to just save you for heaven, that God came to save you from all the bad turns you can make in life, all the bad choices you could make that could run your marriage, run your life. That He wants to save you from your own self from your own destructive ways and from the sinfulness of the world and of the temptation of Satan, from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself his own special people. In Exodus chapter 19, write this down and look it up later. In verses 3 through 6, it says this, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I love that. You now have witnessed how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself, redeemed them out of their bondage of Egypt to bring them to himself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. The Bible tells us in Corinthians that all the promises of God are yea and amen. And God is speaking to you tonight, saying, I have bore you on eagles' wings. I redeemed you out of that flesh life, that sinful life, that life that was dragging you down, destroying you. For many of us, it was before that ever came. I think one of the greatest gifts a parent can ever give their kids is that they grow up not knowing anything else but they are a Christian. <laughs> I can't remember when I received the Lord. I estimate I was probably four or five years old. But I know that I was raised up not knowing anything but being a Christian. And so I know there's a life of destruction out there that Satan had planned out, that the world had planned out, that my flesh would have dove into, that would have destroyed me. And the same with you. D.L. Moody saw a guy falling and throwing up in the gutter, a drunk. And the guy said, look at that disgusting sight. And D.L. Moody said, there go I, but by the grace of God. That's exactly the way my brothers, and that's exactly the way my family ended up. That's exactly the way I would have been had God not come and bore me on eagles' wings and brought me unto Himself. And now the Lord is saying, if you will take heed to His voice, if you will obey Him, if you will let the grace of God bring you to the place that you put to death once and for all, that old man with all the flesh ways, that you now can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It's not a pipe dream. It can become your daily reality. To the point that you have begin to experience that perfect will of God. Not just the good. Not just the acceptable. But to walk in that perfect will of God. That you can live and experience that life where you know and you are sensing and you're walking that I am indeed. That special people of God. The, the, the actual word there is unique or peculiar. The old King James writes peculiar. We are just so walking in a godly way that we're not peculiar because of our hat or our clothes or, you know, we talk in the old King James, how are they doing thou brethren, you know, not peculiar that way, but peculiar because we're so unique to the world. We're not living in an ungodly way. We're not Going to go into the worldly, lustful way, but we're living in a way that's sanctified, set apart. And what happens? We become zealous for good works. Isn't that radical? When your body is free, when your mind is free, you have all this extra energy, you have all of this grace. Paul says, I labor more than all, but not I. It's the grace of God. So now that I'm walking in the grace of God and I've let the grace of God bring me to the place that the old man is dead and I'm walking in this newness of life, now I'm not expending energy on saying, boy, I hope God can forgive me for this one, and boy, I wish I would quit watching that and listening to that and saying that and doing that and and walking away because you have this giant ball of sin dragging you down, and and now it comes to try to do the duties of God, whether it's seeking God in the Word or in prayer or teaching a Sunday school class or or witnessing to somebody. You're not bogged down and, and, and overburdened by a sinful life, but you're freed up. In Galatians 5, he says... God has set us free. He's brought us to liberty not so we can live however we want, but that we can serve through love, serve one another. Freedom is not doing what you want when you want. That is not freedom. Freedom is when you can do what you should. And you can do it easily. You can do it freely. You can do it joyfully. That's freedom. I'm not, I don't have this giant black cloud because I've blown it all last night or all last week or all last month or all last year. And, and now you, you, you know that you're going to come over this hill one day and you're going to reap what you've sown. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he's sown. And you can often see people that are living a life for six months of obedience, but then they, one day they open a door and there's this forest that they planted a year ago. And all of a sudden, the hardship and the difficulty because of the flesh life, let me tell you, it works the same and the opposite. All of a sudden, you wake up one day and you open up and there's this beautiful, wonderful field and it's time for harvest. You didn't even know it was coming, but you planted that field a year ago. And now there is the wonderful work of harvest. Dedication night, I had a lady come up and, with her kids and she goes, hey, I'm coming to church here now. It's a gal who is the secretary, a dental assistant at the dentist office I've been going to the last 10 years. Just little seeds, little seeds, little seeds, little seeds. And there she has come to our church the last couple of weeks. And man, I'll tell you, just, it's joyful to see those seeds. And all of a sudden, you start seeing the harvest and start seeing the growth seeing people you've led to the Lord. I remember one night a while back, and it was on an afterglow night, and I heard this most beautiful prayer, and, and I could und- I knew the voice was a young voice, and I looked over. And it was a young man that used to be on my son's baseball team <laughs> and led his mother and then him eventually to the Lord. And now here he is. He's a youth in our church, and here he has this beautiful prayer, just a beautiful harvest, just a beautiful Gift from God to see that you open a door one day or you walk over a hill and there is nothing but a joyful reaping what you've sown. That's what our life should be about. There is a grace that God wants you to experience. It's the same grace that caused you to be born again. That same exact grace that as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord we should still be walking in it. That God wants to bring you to a place that you're zealous for good works. In other words, you labor more than all, but it's the grace of God. God wants you to have many rewards in heaven. He wants you to have led many people to the Lord. He wants you to have given your life sacrificially in every way, in time, in the first of your day, in the first of your week, in the first of your finances, in the first where you're just a light like a city set on a hill at work where you're just a beacon of salt in your neighborhood, that everywhere you go, behind you is a trail of beauty. Behind you is a scent, an aroma of Christ because of the zealousness of your good works unto him. You know, the Bible commands us to be filled and keep being filled with the Spirit. The Bible commands us to be strong in the grace. How do we do that? Just like we did tonight, worship, the word, communion, and now a time of seeking the Lord in prayer. And you know, there's a lot of you that just haven't got it yet. You know, when you go to other countries, it's, it's funny because if you tried to make church last two and a half hours, they would be angry because it was so short. In most countries of the world, when you go to church, you're going for at least four, not five hours. And for many parts of the world, they had to travel two hours to find a place where they're teaching the word. I often think we make it too easy. And thus, there's not enough hurdle that people say, it's so simple, I could have at any time. You know, it's not that way. You don't want to look at life that way. And my prayer for many of you is that you'll get it. You'll get living a godly life and you'll have the grace to seek the Lord with us for an hour or however much time we have when I get done preaching. (laughs) And it wouldn't be a burden, but it would be just a zealous thing of good works where you just can't get enough. I know at the end of the prayer time on Sunday nights, I'm not like, Man, it's 8.30, but was that a long time? It's like, oh man, I could keep going till midnight. That's the grace of God. That's the joy that 99.9% of the people who stay for the afterglow service have. And so the service is over. You can go home. You can collect your kids and go. And there's all kinds of great reasons why. Well, it's late. Man, it's 7.45. Woo! You got school the next day yeah I got work you know I gotta iron my shirt I've got to you know there's always excuses to do what you want to do or not what you want to do I mean you call the guy up and say hey can you help me Saturday morning at 7 o'clock to move it's gonna probably take till 5 o'clock the afternoon oh man I'd love to help you but you know I've got so many things going on and I like to sleep in Saturday morning by, hang up the phone, some guy calls up, the yellow teller running, you know, I'll pick you up at 4 o'clock in the morning, we won't get back till 8 o'clock at night, can you go Saturday? Absolutely, I'll erase my schedule. (laughs) It's always amazing that you have time to do what you want to do, and you always have an excuse for, to not do what you don't want to do. And so I, I ask you to come back to that place, to listen to me as your friend, as your pastor to say, I know that God is leading us as a family to a prayer, to a place where this place is packed out on Sunday night, and when it comes time to afterglow, somehow we end up with more people crying out to God. And it's not a drudgery. It's not a burden. Quite the opposite. Because of the overwhelming work of the grace of God, we just can't get enough. (laughs) There's not enough prayers. There's not enough worship. There's not enough zeal that can just cry out to God enough. It's great that you made it thus far. And so it really needs to be of a willing heart. But that is where the grace of God is leading you. And I pray that he does it for every single one of you and very, very soon. And I do know there are people here that literally do have to be at work at 8 o'clock. They've got to get home and get down to the post office or wherever by 8.30. There are people that have those reasons. And so I do know there are legitimate reasons why people can't stay. And so I know not everybody's going to be able to stay. But pray with us as you're in your car as you're heading home or as you're going to work. But I, I do want to know, for the most part, that God is leading us to make this place, what? A house of prayer. It's great. We made it a house of worship. We made it a house of communion. We made it a house of teaching. We make it a house of fellowship. But the number one priority, which often ends up on the bottom of our list top of God's list but the bottom of our list is that we would make God's house a house of prayer Lord I do thank you again for this night and I do thank you Lord that you are incredible in all your ways and we thank you for this grace of God and for many here tonight this concept of the grace of God has been unfolded to them in a new and a fresh way They've sort of settled in to say, i am come as far as I can be, and I'm, I'm still going to be fleshly to some degree. I'm still going to be sinful to some degree. I'm still going to have to live according to my flesh and, and give in to my flesh here and there a little bit because I'm on earth and I can't wait for my new body. But you're saying it's now. There's a grace of God. And Lord, we know that there's a lost and dying world around us that is suffering so much right now. There's a lost and dying world that is that doesn't know about any of the gifts of God, any of the grace of God, any of the peace, any of the joy that we're experiencing here tonight. They're at home trying to get filled up on drugs and alcohol and the entertainment of this world, trying to satisfy that longing in their heart that we once had. And Lord, as easy as it is just to open our mouth and speak, we can't do it. You said it right, Lord. Apart from me, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we know it's the power of your spirit we need. You commanded us to be filled, so we come before you now in this time of afterload to be filled. We come at this time to seek your face, and we ask that you would be glorified. Give us great grace, grace that we've never known before, to press in upon you. Give us that spirit of prayer and supplication, of intercession. I know this is good and acceptable in your sight. Give us grace, Lord. Give us more grace in Jesus' precious name. So next week, when you sign in your kids, you can say, are you going to stay for Afterglow or not? And if you are, they're going to go ahead and take your kids to the big room or to the bookstore room, the smaller kids. But for tonight, you have to do it yourself because we didn't get that logistically set out before. So take your kids and in the big room. There will be people there watching them. And then you can come back for Afterglow and... Um, if you got to go, God bless you. If you would hold your conversations tell you're outside, uh, at least in the foyer area. And the rest of us, let's stand up and let's get busy seeking the face of God. Let's be that special people, zealous for good works. And what better work than to seek the face of God?